It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Jennifer McKinley's life began and ended with violence. In 1985, at only two years old, she was found alone and crying in a Houston apartment covered in blood. But the blood was not hers. The stains were from her mother, Tammy Wright, who, along with two other people, had been shot to death. Tammy had fled from her abusive boyfriend and with her young daughter sought refuge in a friend's apartment. But Tammy's abusive boyfriend was in jail at the time of the murders, and authorities were left with no suspects in the investigation. The case of the three murders went cold. Jennifer grew up and went on to have a son of her own. But just like Jennifer, that boy would grow up without a mother and would be in the same apartment where she was killed when she was killed. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On the morning of May 19, 2012, the Houston Police Department was notified of a homicide. 28-year-old Jennifer McKinley was found dead on her bedroom floor, her body covered with a blanket. Jennifer had multiple bruises and injuries across her body. The cause of death was manual strangulation, and her killer remained in a nearby room. Jennifer's live-in boyfriend was 44-year-old Eric Erminger. When police arrived at the scene, he had barricaded himself in a bathroom and threatened to kill himself with a sword he owned. Erminger was melodramatic and obsessed with video games. He was both physically and emotionally abusive towards Jennifer. Friends and family knew about the violence and encouraged Jennifer to leave him. She loved Erminger and she cared for him up until the very moment of her death. Jennifer's life was unfairly stolen, leaving behind her eight-year-old son, who had been asleep in his bedroom while his mother was killed. Phil Waters was a homicide detective with the Houston Police Department and was assigned to this tragic case. He joins me now to walk us through the investigation and the bizarre confession that followed. Well, the process at HPD Homicide, we have an intake desk. When there is a homicide scene that uh, patrol is dispatched to, then they get there, they make their initial field investigation, interview witnesses if that's the case, secure the scene, and make their own notes about what they're going to call in to the homicide intake desk. Describe to that detective, then we have a call-out process and whoever is next up on the call-out is the one that's going to get that scene. So that's what happens here. We get uh, we get called out. It's early in the morning, and we are notified by the intake desk that we had this homicide scene. And all we're pretty much told is that we've got a, a dead female in an apartment, and the people that we know are on the scene are her boyfriend, uh, live-in boyfriend, and her, at the time, eight-year-old son. And so we, and, and we also have the mother uh, who is also at the scene. Can I ask you, Detective, when you get that original description, does it include as well a risk metric? Does your dispatcher say something like everything is secured or I'm thinking of my point is the high rates of continued violence around domestic disturbances. And when you get a call where the boyfriend is alive and there and present and a child and, a, and with a dead female, 
um, that raises a lot of risk for law enforcement and for that family. Was that communicated to you? And how do you uh, respond to that or manage that in your response? Well, remember, we're getting there after the fact. So the patrol officers have already had already had the scene secured and they are filling in the intake desk on what they have. So by the time we get there, if there, I mean, there's always a possibility of a threat. There's always a possibility that that, that person that they have there at the scene may go off and that kind of thing. So that possibility always is by the time we get there, though, we, we are, uh, we are reactive, not proactive, if that, if that makes sense. So in this particular case, though, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question because the setup for this scene was that the, the suspect, the, his name is Eric Erminger, he had called his mother, who lived fairly close by, in a, in a, fairly, in, in a very nice section of Houston, by the way, Kingwood, Texas. And he told her some scant details about what he had done she immediately responded and goes to the apartment. She finds Jennifer and our victim. And she is the one that's calling the police. So it's, that's interesting. If I remember correctly, she calls the police. Well, the police get there. Now, by the time the patrol officers get there, Arminger has barricaded himself in the bathroom and he has this it's a sword but it's like one of these costume swords I mean it could do some damage but it's not like what we think about you know a sword with a sharpened edge on it that kind of thing it's more of a, a little display kind of sword but it is nonetheless a sword so that immediately becomes a threat to the patrol officers that are responding and he barricades himself in the bathroom, and he's saying he's going to commit suicide. So the officers have secured the scene. They've moved the, 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 the son, the boy, out of the apartment. Now they're dealing with this guy, this barricaded situation. And his mother is there. Of course, she's hollering at him. I mean, it was just a, just a, a crazy, crazy from the beginning. And by the time we respond, we get there. So we're talking, it's, I want to say it's, it's around, it's, it's day shift. So we're, we're right at the office. Uh, it's about a maybe 30 minute drive to this area of Houston from downtown. And so by the time we get there, the scene is secured. He is now in custody and he's handcuffed in the back seat of the patrol car. So that, that threat has been eliminated. They didn't have to shoot him, didn't have to do any other uh, use of force other than to get him into custody. And when we get there, we we work in pairs. So my partner, we, and we split up the way we conduct the investigation. That's the way our process is in homicide and HPD. So we have a scene side and we have a witness side. And we alternate those at each scene. So this particular scene, I had the witness side, which means that I'm going to interview all the witnesses. I'm going to do the people side of this investigation. Research on the background on Jennifer or victim. And of course, if he will submit to an interview, I will be interviewing the suspect. Uh, the scene side, which my partner is going to be working, is just what it says. It is the physical scene, processing the scene, he gets with a crime scene unit, and they proceed to process the scene, see what uh, evidence is retrievable and recoverable, and they go through that whole scene, videotaping, pictures, and so forth and so on. So, and tagging of evidence and, and, and that kind of thing. So, we have two separate functions, but we both, when we get there, we both get with the primary officer. He briefs us on what we have. And then we both go in and we peruse the scene and make our own uh, we have our own commentary between one another about what we're seeing, 
and we're objective, so we're walking into this thing completely open-minded. We're not predisposed to it. So the, but when we get there, before we even get to the process of going in the apartment and, and viewing the scene, the suspect, Erminger, is in the backseat of the patrol car in handcuffs. He's in custody. And he is yelling uh, something to the effect that, I did it. I'm guilty. I did it. He's just spouting off this, I'm guilty. I did it stuff, which was, I would have to say, a little unusual. That That's not something we, under normal circumstances, we would find. But he's doing that. So I'm going over and talking to him and can I ask you, Detective, Yes. the tenor of that, was it racked with remorse and guilt as he was shouting? Was it triumphant and, and, and pride? You know, as he's uttering those words and shouting it, what message was the tone and such communicating to you about it? Well, there was no remorse. I mean, in terms of the tone, it was more of like, look at me, look at me. You know, it's kind of a, it was kind of a, is what he turns out to be. It's kind of a narcissistic response that I've committed this this uh, sociopathic act, which I somehow feel justified in doing, and uh, I want everybody's attention on me. Not not necessarily that he was proud of it, but that he it was kind of a false. What I read from him, I've taken a lot of confessions from people. I've taken I've, I've heard a lot of admissions. This one didn't appear to me to be one that was sincere in the sense that he wanted to, to confess. And that bears out later in the interview process. But it was just unusual. Mm -hmm. and, and my sense was that it wasn't terribly sincere. It was just kind of he was saying it because he thought that somehow that was going to explain what happened, which obviously it didn't do. And and then we... we my partner and I, we go upstairs and, and look at the scene, and we always let the scene talk to us. So when we walk in, again, we're objective, we're open-minded, and we just start to take in what the scene is saying to us. And it was apparent that she had been strangled, manual strangulation. Her body had been there long enough that we were able to see the postmortem lividity where the, the blood settles to the lowest parts of the body. We saw some bruising, of course, on her neck and, and some other bruises and so forth and so on. And she was on the floor covered with a blanket off the bed, which was interesting. So what does that tell us? Well, it was... She on the bed, then he did what he did on the bed, then he pushed her off the bed and covered her up. So, you know, just, just so these things are to be asked later of him, but these are the things that I'm taking in when I'm preparing for the interview. So it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a very broad scope when looking at the scene. And then we see, see, uh, Kind of some strange things. If I recall right, I think there, the scene was uh, one that there looked like there'd been some sort of, uh, of promotion. In there. Now, when you walk into the apartment, of course, the, the living area did not look that way. Uh, did not look like there'd been a struggle or anything in the main part of the apartment, the kitchen, so forth and so on. And at the time that this is occurring, we are told, the eight-year-old, her eight-year-old little boy, not his, her son, is in his bedroom asleep. And then we find out later that Erminger actually gets up. The little boy is out in the kitchen area fixing himself some cereal for breakfast. Erminger helps him with it. And, of course, his mother is laying on the floor dead. So it's just a really, that aspect of it. And this guy was a strange, he was, he was kind of a strange guy anyway. He was 40-something years old, I think, at the time. She was in her 30s, I believe. Um, 
So there was a there was a degree of separation in their ages. I want to say she may have been younger than that. Actually, she may have been twenty four. I want to say there was a, there was a gap of maybe she eight, was she was twenty eight. Twenty eight years old. Yeah. Yep. But yep. There was almost a twenty year gap. So they, these are all things that I'm just checking boxes, right? When I'm getting this information, because this is going to be important when I sit down in an interview room and start to talk to them about what happened. Um, and in the meantime, I, I go and interview uh, her boy. I go and interview the son. And, of course, I'm sitting with him in the back of the ambulance, and we're talking. And he doesn't know what's happened. So all I'm, and I'm not going to be the one to tell him. So I just talked to him about what he heard when he went to bed, when he got up, what did he do, and so forth and so on. So it's very just benign questions about his activity and what he may or may not have heard. Because he may have heard something that he doesn't know is significant through the investigation. So it's just important to let him tell me what was going on when he got up that morning. And then we had contacted his father who did show up. And I spoke to the father because we, we had a, uh, we had neighbors that came out that knew him and knew her. Uh, we talked to her friend. There was a, there was a, and they, they all commented almost to a person, each person that he was rather strange. And there wasn't, and in fact, one of the friends had talked about the fact that he may have been abusive to her in the past, that she, they had seen bruises on her in the past. She explained him away, of course, as not being anything. And, and so we're, we're kind of seeing the classic signs of domestic violence in, in terms of what this may have led, why this led up to this, this murder. So these, again, these are all pieces of information that I'm processing and I'm keeping when I get to him, get him in that interview. So I interview all these witnesses. We have several that show up and, and I even interview the father about what he knows about Erminger. What does he know about this thing? So forth. So, and Erminger himself has a 20 year old son. So it's just kind of a weird deal that he's, he, and he, and he meets, he meets, um, Jennifer in the workplace and for whatever reasons, they kind of you know, hit it off and, and she's, she is, um, they end up moving in together and she's got, the son with him. Now he, to add to this whole formula here, he's a gamer. So he likes to sit in their little, in a little side room there in their apartment. And he's got the TV hooked up. He's got, you know, all the little video games set up in there, Xbox, whatever. And he, and I'm not saying that as, as a criticism, because I like to, play video games myself on occasion. Of course, when my son was growing up, we were in there, you know, doing the deal, right? Mortal Kombat, right? So, but he, and Christine is in there with the eight-year-old, with, with the boy, uh, uh, playing these video games. And he's really into it. I mean, in a weird, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's not what I would say is normal. I mean, he's like obsessed and I think to the point when he gets this this costume sword and he's he's going to kill himself in this big grandiose fashion by running himself through with a sword or whatever in the bathroom, I'm thinking to myself, I I, I wonder if he doesn't see himself as part of some sort of video game that he's created in his own mind. And he's responding as he thinks he would if he were the main character in that video game. It was just so weird. And overly theatrical, dramatic. Right. Really melodramatic, over the top. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in the bathroom with this. 
costume sword, and I'm going to kill myself because of what I've done. I mean, it was just, it was just weird. And then when you, and I talked to the mother, of course, who had made the phone call, and and I start to get an understanding of the relationship. Well, they're very close. She lives very close by. She's telling me that that Jennifer referred to her as mom or something like that, and uh, which I thought was kind of unusual. But she, so she was. Let me let me put it this way. So she was different, and the and the the relationship between her and her son was different. So I have to take all of these things into consideration. Again, preparing to get him in the interview room. When you say different, can you describe a little more? Was it were they unusually close? Was she supportive of him? Did she was she despondent over Jennifer's death? What was she communicating to you with her emotions? She was. I, I, I never said, maybe this is just the way she is, but I never sensed that she was upset in the way that you and I might be upset. No tears. She was actually very sanguine. I mean, she was just kind of, uh, uh, okay, I'm here. He called me. He did this. He's in the bathroom. He was going to kill himself. I'm telling him to get out of there. You know, it was just very matter of fact. And, and then the, I would say they had a very close relationship. Uh, for a guy his age, it just, to me, it was kind of unusual. I mean, I know how my relationship was with my mom, and it wasn't like that. <laughs> so, it was just a little, you know, a little, and I, I, I'm trying to be, I guess, diplomatic here. It was just different. It was just different. And, uh, but I picked up on it pretty quick. And so I interviewed all those folks, went back in, got with my partner. We, and he's working the scene. Have you seen anything that I need to know that you've seen now in the processing uh, about the scene? And we, when we got her uncovered and, and of course the medical examiner showed up as they always do. And the body technically belongs to the medical examiner. We don't touch the body until the ME gets there, their, their investigator gets there. And then they're the ones that will turn the body if necessary, uh, will examine the body, will take the personal items off the body and so forth and so on. And recover if we're going to do trace evidence, you know, that kind of thing. They're the ones that do that. So we, we looked at everything. We just saw these, these different, uh, some bruising, and uh, there's that kind of gives us an indication that the type of force that was used to pin her down, and then the method in which the the cause of death, which it looked at the scene to be uh, manual strangulation, asphyxiation. So once that's all done, then I am going to have him transported to the homicide division, to an interview room in the homicide division, and I will follow, and then uh, I go in there, and I will conduct my interview. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So now this was the same day, same day, and you are now in the interview room at Houston Homicide with Eric Erminger. And what did he tell you? One of the more interesting interviews that I've conducted, he's quite a character, as, as I would just, that would be a more accurate description. He's quite a character. And again, and I use the term character because... The whole time that I interviewed him, my sense was that he was a character in his own video game. Mm. And he was doing things and saying things that were consistent with what he perceived to be his role in that particular venue. I mean, it was just, it was, it was, 
it was a weird interview. And so I have to Mirandize him. Now, he, so he's kind of one of these guys that goes and we sit down and he goes, I did it. Okay, I did it. And I said, well, you know, Eric, I said, that's, that's not the purpose here. It's just to hear you say, I did it. I need to understand. I want to talk to you about it. And I want to find out what led up to this. If, if you, in fact, did it, I want to find out what led up to this. So he gets Mirandized. Uh, he waives his rights to have our conversation. And we, we have this conversation. So we start to talk about where were you earlier in the night, so forth and so on. Now, let's, let's, let's set the stage. I mean, this didn't happen in a vacuum. You know? So let's, let's go back, figure out where does this start? How, does this, how did it get where we are? And so it turns out that he's in a, uh, he's in a bar. He'd gone to a bar, I think, with some buddies, maybe some uh, some uh, co-workers. I think that's that's what he told me. And uh, of course, he's driven, you know, his car over there, and he gets drunk. And the people there, you know, you're not going to drive home, so he calls Jennifer, who's at home with her son. Says, you know, I'm drunk, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's late. So she goes and picks up Eric at the bar and bringing him home. Well, I think there was some, she was kind of uh, railing on him about getting drunk and this and that. And, you know, her son, I, I don't recall if she, if she left him at the apartment with a friend or if she, I don't think she brought him with her, but it was, it was, it was not a good situation. You know, he was very uh, inconsiderate of her, but she loved him. She didn't want him driving home drunk. So she picked him up and they get to the apartment and they get, so then now it is okay. We're home and you're approaching the door. What happens when you step over the threshold? So this is the part where he really gets weird. He says, I just, I don't remember. And I'm like, well, really? I mean, we've told this story. You're sitting here going, I did it. But now you're going to claim alcoholic amnesia about the details of what you've done, what you've admitted to doing. And that was pretty much where he is. Uh, yeah, you know, I this and that, and blah, 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 blah. So I said, let's let's try this. Let's try a cognitive interviewing style, which means I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to clear your mind, and I want us to go back to the beginning of the night, and I want you to walk through what you did when you got to the apartment, when you stepped across the threshold, when you got into the bedroom, I want you to walk through that. It's not hypnosis, but it's pretty close to it's, it's trying to get them to remember in a cognitive way the series of events that led them to the, the final outcome. Well, he's not a stupid guy. I mean, he's a you know he's he's a smart guy, and one of the requirements for a cognitive interview is that your subject has to be cooperative, has to submit to the interview, to that type of interview. And one of those requirements is to close your eyes, sit back, and I just want you to start recalling what occurred. Well, <laughs> he leans back in the chair, and he closes his eyes, and we start this process, and then I can see him doing this. Like, looking at me, you know, he's like he's trying to hide that he's not opening his eyes and looking. So he's not cooperating in the process of this cognitive interview, which he's agreed to do. So it was just, and what this is telling me is that this guy is furthering this video game atmosphere in this interview room. This has become a game for him. 
And now we're in this little battle of what can he say to me that will cause him to go a different direction or make a different decision or open up a little more. I mean, that that is the kind of cat and mouse game we were playing in there. And so it was interesting from that aspect. So I continued on talking to him, talking to him, and knowing what I knew about him in terms of the relationship between Jennifer and he, uh, I asked him about that. I said, I said, kind of tell me how you and Jennifer met. So I wanted to go back in time and let's just start from the beginning of the relationship. And did you ever do this and that? And then he told me about times he would go and holidays with her uh, and he got along with her son. They take video games together. He's a good kid. You know, da, 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 da. What was their place of employment? Because you mentioned they, they met at work. Where did they work? What type we of work? worked for a large company. I think it was Crane Industries. They do a lot of uh, shipping, uh, packaging, that kind of thing. And he was, he was that person. He was a guy that worked that figured out what kind of package you would put things in and, and ship out. So he was the guy that, you know, if you needed a, a six by six box or a container to put in, then that's what he would figure out. If that's what he figured out, that's what you would use. So he was the guy that was in there coordinating the type of container that these whatever was going out, was going out in. So that kind of fit the mold here, right? He's one of these, you know, precise kind of, you know, anal, you know, kind of OCD guys, which I have to admit I'm kind of that way myself in a lot of ways. But, um, but, but it was, it was given what I knew about him and given my impression of him, this seemed to be like, yeah, this is the job, if I was to guess, this would be the kind of job I would see you do. And so we went out and we interviewed, of course, after after uh, my interview with him, we went out and we interviewed witnesses in the workplace. So his co-workers out there in the, in the, in the workplace, which was very revealing uh, in terms of after the interview was done. So I, I could share that with you here in a minute, but... So we continued the interview, and he was getting, I guess the best word I can describe, used to describe him was, he was getting frustrated about the fact that I was going to sit in that room with him. As long as he was willing to talk to me, I was going to sit there and talk to him to find out what happened and why it happened. And I think he got... He just at one point he just said, uh, "I did, it. yeah." And that, and he goes, "He goes what?" He goes, and, he, and he said to me, "What? What do you want? What do you want?" I did it, and I said, "Eric, I want the truth." And that kind of threw him off a little bit, and so we we ended up finally. I, I, I get to him in a way that he begins to give me little pieces of the continuing story. So that I eventually get him into the bedroom. I get him to tell me about what had happened between he and Jennifer, that, that he was, and these kinds of admissions are important because what he had talked about was that Jennifer would rag him and he didn't, you know, he was getting irritated with her and of course he was drunk he was intoxicated the last thing a drunk wants to listen to if you've already got a little line that you don't want to go over by listening to these people you know somebody bragging at you and she crossed that line is what it boiled down to now he claimed at one point I believe that he laid down in the bed and passed out or he laid down. So, well, something happened, something happened. And he eventually describes that he, I don't, I don't recall if he 
just came out and said, yeah, I choked him. I think it was kind of one of these things where, okay, so what you did to her, what do you think you would have had to use to perform the act? And he's like, oh, I don't know, my hands? You know, I mean, so those, so these little these little admissions begin to add up. And, and of course, he, he had admitted that he did it, but it was necessary for him to corroborate what he's admitting to, what he's confessing to, because just him saying it is could not necessarily be enough. So I, I don't I don't need to just have you sit there and go, I did it. I just I need you to explain to me why you did it and how you did it. And so we got we got there. It was just um, it was like pulling teeth because he saw this, I think, again, he saw this as some sort of a, a video game where this was the, this is what we were doing. We were battling each other in this interview room uh, in a journey for the trip, which he did not want to go to in the full way that I wanted him to. And then... He made some comment in there or something like, I don't know when it was later on, but he, he says, well, uh, when, we, when we concluded, when we brought thing to a conclusion, make some comment like, I'll probably get 40 years for this. Which was, to me, there, there was never any any remorse. You know? I mean, I talked about his son. I talked about his you know, trying to get to know him and build that relationship between he and I so that he would trust me enough to, to tell me what he did. But he's one of these people, again, a narcissist, thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and he, he's enjoying he's enjoying the uh, the duel. You know, he's, he's enjoying this little uh, sword fight that we're having, right? No pun intended with his costume sword, right? So um, he, but, but it was, I mean, in terms of, the charge we're going to file in terms of these admissions and so forth, it's, it's good. It's for me as the detective, I got what I needed to get out of him. I, I wished I'd have gotten a little more perhaps, but through the whole thing, no remorse. It was just like, we were telling the story of the battle that we were in. And it was just, it was, it was very cold, I guess is the best way to describe it. Very uh, unemotional. I don't recall seeing any kind of emoting from him. Maybe when he talked about his son, but I, I just don't recall any emoting about his son, his mom. It was just kind of a weird. He's, he's a he's a strange a strange character. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. At any point during that interview or at any point afterward, did he make an indication that he was aware that Jennifer's mother had suffered a horrible, violent death also in an apartment and that Jennifer, his girlfriend who he had murdered, was found as a two-year-old walking around in her mom's blood? Did he know how the mother of Jennifer had been murdered also? I don't know that because I didn't know that at the time. I had no idea that that had been Jennifer's background. And so there was no connection there that he made, if he didn't know it. I know what was interesting that I went through, I went through all of her, we, we downloaded her cell phone. And so we had all sorts of pictures of her with him and so forth and so on. And this one picture kind of gave me the gauge in the manner in which he, his perception of this relationship was. And I don't believe for a minute that Jennifer knew this photograph because she had hundreds of photographs. And I don't think she knew this was in but uh, there was a picture of, presumably, of his erect penis. 
which again to me when I when I came across I just went what in the world and it was it was right in the middle and, and it wasn't like in the middle of pictures of them in some sort of romantic setting or anything like that which which might explain it but it was among all these pictures of her with her boy and you know her, her family which is the grandparents uh, with him and holiday stuff it was bizarre where it was placed it was like in the middle of all these really good wholesome times and then I guess what was he thinking that she'd be looking through these pictures or showing them to somebody and boom all of a sudden that one would pop up I mean it, it was just he just was a he was just a strange character mm. Did you speak to her family after the murder? And if so, what did they express to you about the tragic coincidence of her mother and how Jennifer died? I got a phone call from her grandfather, the one who had raised her uh, grandfather. I think the grandfather. Charlie. Yeah, Charlie. Charlie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Charlie, in fact, I may still have his number on my phone, but uh, Charlie called me, and he's the one that told me about what had happened to Jennifer's mother. Holy cow! You know, you're talking. I mean, it said it happened twenty six, twenty seven years before, right? And and she wasn't the only one killed. There were a couple other people. I mean, it was a, a horrific scene, and as you've already talked about. Little Jennifer, two years old, is walking around in the blood in the apartment. So it was just, uh, I was horrible. And listening to Charlie explain that to me, uh, it was heartbreaking. And I mean, that's the definition of irony, right? That while she wasn't bleeding, but she was still murdered in her apartment and her son was in the bedroom across the the hall. So yeah, those, the parallels there were, were kind of, kind of scary. And, uh, so now you've got, and I don't know what point in time, I'm sure, I'm sure now that, uh, that her son has, has been told the whole story. And so I just can't imagine what his response to that would be, uh, knowing that, that, that history, that history of his, of his family. Tammy writes, 1985 murder is as yet unsolved. Is it considered a cold case in Houston? Is there an active cold case investigation still into the murder of Jennifer's mother, Tammy Wright? It is an active cold case. In fact, I went to our cold case sergeant at the time when I got this information, and he pulled the case back up. And I asked him if he would review it. To see. I mean, there's, as you can imagine, especially in Houston, Texas, there's thousands of cold cases. Mm-hmm. And they go through, and they're very meticulous about how they make that selection. So I went to him and it was, and I asked him if he would look into this case and see if there is any probative evidence, new leads that can be followed up at this point in time. So he did that. I think there was some DNA that was submitted. Nothing came back. And so it is back in a cold case status. And what has been done, can be done. So it was, when I say it's active, it's in that status that if new information comes in, then of course it might cause them to take another visit, a new lead comes in and they can continue to pursue it. But that was all done and and that was all done prompted by Charlie's phone call and making me aware of, of that situation. So you're correct to this day, it, it remains a cold case and it's, it's over. The stark contrast between the two is that 
1985, Tammy's boyfriend happened to be in jail the night of the murders. And so his alibi is airtight. Right. And there, there were no leads. So unlike this, where you came upon the partner confessing literally from the first second, part of what makes Tammy Wright's cold case still cold is no suspects. No suspects identified. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. He was, he was, he was looked at first, of course, and then was quickly eliminated because they obviously couldn't have committed that act while he's sitting in the, in the jail. Can I ask you in terms of eliciting those kinds of confessions and the way that you described, or my impression was that the callousness, the righteousness with which Arminger described what essentially what he was saying is that he was justified, right? That she nagged him. He hit the breaking point. He was justified or in his own head, he was justified in this. What is it like as a homicide investigator to be eliciting these confessions and hear from another human, how little they valued another human's life such that annoyance was the justification, such that there was any justification for taking a woman's life in such a brutal way. Well, I talked to those kinds of people for an entire career, 23 years in homicide. And it always struck me how shallow and how callous and how, you know, we use, we use the word sociopath and psychopath and that kind of thing. Of course, for me, the simple definition, simple difference is a psychopath or sociopath does something that they think they're justified. A psychopath does things that he's enjoying doing. So sometimes a psychopath will commit a sociopathic act. Sometimes we just have a sociopath that goes out and commits an act like this and thinks they're justified and good because, yeah, Jennifer nagged at me. Yeah, Jennifer did this and that. And so the value of life becomes non-existent. They don't care because what are they trying to do? They're trying to satisfy their own narcissistic opinion of themselves. You're an annoyance. Therefore, I need to get rid of the annoyance, which is you. And it doesn't make any difference how I do that. Now, the simple thing would have been, like, there's always asked when we see these husbands killing wives and wives killing husbands or, or setting up a murder, you know, that kind of thing. Why don't you just go get a divorce? You know, why why do this? And the answers, I guess, are different for each person. But the bottom line is, is that at the core of it is a self-centered, self-absorbed narcissist that has decided, makes, makes a conscious decision that they find themselves in a situation that is just untenable. Then the way to get rid of it is to just get rid of the problem altogether which means wiping it off the face of the earth. Now, in this particular case, what's really interesting about this, to me as a detective and, and, the, and the interview process, after we, this constant claiming of alcoholic amnesia, and I just don't remember, and you know, I don't remember putting my hand, I don't, you know, just blah, 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 which to me, again, it was part of the game I think he was playing, but then on the other hand, it's it's like, you, you think you're a hero because you're admitting to this, but then you're a coward because you won't admit about how you did it and when you did it. So they, these guys are cowards. You know, they, they, build, they build themselves up. And I, I mean, my job in that room is to build them up. And as much as I build them up and if I share with them, look, I understand, you know, I'm married. I understand that my wife you know, aggravates the crap out of me. I, you know, there's times when I may say something like, you know, I just feel like killing, you know, that kind of thing. And that's just to further the relationship between me and that person that I'm interviewing and, uh, and share. I'm showing that I'm, I'm empathetic to where they find themselves. And that's very important. In this particular case, this alcoholic amnesia thing, we go and interview the co-workers this is after the interview. He's been charged. He's in jail. We go and talk to them because we've got to do a, a follow-up investigation, make sure we've got all the bases covered, talk to everybody we can. 
And a couple of those tell us that in the workplace, when they're all back there doing their thing, he had mentioned something to the effect that if I ever murder someone, I'm going to tell them, tell the cops, that I don't remember what happened. And I'm just like, you talk about a, I mean, I kind of had the look on my face like you just had on yours. So it's like you're going, wow. So what does that mean? This is something that not necessarily he premeditated to kill Jennifer, but it's pretty obvious that he has had this thought in his head that he has contemplated murdering someone, killing someone, and that if he does finally commit the act, He's going to claim, I don't remember what happened. And now he's, it's convenient for him because he got out and he got, he went out and he got drunk. So he's claiming the alcoholic amnesia thing. And I've seen a couple of guys do that before, but not a guy that planned to do it if he ever committed the act that he had now committed. So it was an interesting, interesting interview. And, did he ultimately accept a plea deal or was he convicted in trial? And if so, was that, was that part admissible or did he confess to so much detail? You didn't need to bring up his initial claims of alcoholic amnesia. Oh, no, no, no. It's all, it's all a full package. You know, when I, when I do a report, when I conduct an interview, it's everything, everything. I'm a, I'm a detailed guy and everything that goes on in that room is so all those details are important to further the investigation and give the prosecutors the ability to have a successful prosecution. And there's no such thing as a slam dunk case, but in my experience, we walk it, we get as far into it, we get as close to the truth as we can get. There are some times where, you know, I always tell these guys in the room that this is like a big jigsaw puzzle. You know, first you got to open the box and you put the thousand pieces on the table. Then what do you got to do? You got to turn those pieces over. Then what do you got to do? You got to build the frame. Then what do you do? You start putting the pieces inside the frame and build the picture. And you build the picture by putting more of those pieces in the right place. And But you know what? By the time you get to the end of it, there's always like two or three pieces that the dog ate. And you're not able to complete the picture. But you have enough of the picture that you know what happened. And so that's the approach I take with these. So every piece is important. While we may not get all of the pieces, every piece that we do get has equal value. So he ended up, because the evidence was, in terms of the overall investigation, the evidence that we collected, and so forth and so on, and the interview, he was smart to take the plea. And so how many years do you think he pled to? I'm, I have trepidation. You remember, it, you remember, you remember what I said before during the interview, he said, I'll probably get 40 years for this. Oh yeah. Yeah. He pled to 40 years. Oh, I was worried it would be a, a, a single digit number. Well, no, 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 no. It was just, it, again, he said this in the interview room, you know, wow. two, two, three years before he made the plea. It, it sounds like ironic. he, yeah, he pleads to forty years. So, and it's it sounds like he's sort of prophetic under over his own life because he told his coworkers what he would claim if he ever killed someone. He did, and then he told you what he would plead to, and he did. Well, it was it was like a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Which is which makes it. A little strange. I don't. I don't know that. I worked over four hundred homicides in, in in Houston, Texas, and uh, I don't know that I had one that was like this in the sense that, yeah, it was a self fulfilling prophecy. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. As a final question, Detective, given the volume of horrific cases that you have worked, um, but the closure that you've brought families, the 
terrible collateral damage of so many children who witness violence and who are left without parents or without a parent and the like. How has your faith played a part in you processing and or managing and maintaining a sense of balance and peace throughout that? Well, you use the word closure. I never use the word closure. It's impossible to mm. complete. It cannot be done. Mm. And I had victims' families and so forth that would come up to me at scenes, you know, crying, I just want closure, I want closure. And I would tell them, you're not going to get closure. And here's what I'm going to strive for, for you. I'm going to try to, I will do everything I can to find the right person who's done this wrong thing to your family member or your friend. And when that happens, what I want to accomplish, what I hope to accomplish, is to bring about a measure of justice for that family member, for that victim, and a sense of peace for you. Because that hole that's in your heart now, where that loved one occupies, will never be closed, never be closed. There may be a scar, there may be a scab, but it will never be closed. So that's, and I, and I, and I, and I do that because I don't want them, because that expectation of closure will never be met. So what I want to give them is a hope that a measure of justice and a sense of peace will bring down the ugly emotions of what happened. Now, to answer your question, I'm a Christ follower. My faith has always been an integral part of who I am. And through all the years in homicide, what was uh, most in front of me every day that I entered the homicide division was that I'm employed by the Houston Police Department, but I work for God. And I give a voice to those who can no longer speak for themselves. And I, when I, when I teach interviewing, I always tell the officers or detectives that are in there for that class, don't ever, don't you ever introduce God into the room. And if you're, if the person you're speaking to does, then you can, whatever you're confident about talking in those areas, then that's fine if they introduce it. Because I've had guys in the room that could quote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so I'm not going to get in there with, uh, I'm not going to bring it up and then have this person kind of minimize what I know about bringing that up. Uh, and it makes me look, stupid and it gives them confidence that they're they're now manipulating and controlling the conversation so having said that there was never a time when i didn't pray before i walked into the interview room and while i didn't bring god into the room in a discussion with them i knew that he was with me as i walked into the room you know john 1 5 says the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Mm. So I knew that I am walking into darkness, because darkness doesn't exist on its own. It's the absence of light that causes darkness. So I knew when I walked into that interview room, I'm walking into the darkness, and I'm bringing the light with me. And so it was always a journey. And I would tell these people in the room that I've got two responsibilities. The first one is to find the right person who has done this. And of course, I'd tell them, that's why you're sitting in this room today. And of course, I'd get you know the reaction, right? But then I would tell them the second thing, second responsibility I have, and more important than the first, is that I have to get as close to the truth as I can possibly get. And there is only one person sitting in this room that can make that happen. And that's you. And so then we had a conversation. Uh, so it has been my, 
my wife used to call what I did at Homicide my ministry, which is kind of funny. But uh, I never really thought of it that way. But it was important to me, as I try to do uh, throughout my life, is to is reflect Jesus Christ and His love for everyone. So it was, it was, and so that was the philosophy of uh, in the room when, when I teach. I mean, interviewing is interviewing. You know, you can body language and eyes and all that stuff. That's that's just the mechanics of interviewing. And I've been to four different interview schools. I've seen every every different kind of philosophy. They call it the same thing different names, so they can call it their own and all that good stuff. But uh, I put together my partner. And I put together a curriculum for interview classes, and we teach a three day interview school and a two day advanced school, and. Our approach to it was a difference in philosophy about how you conduct the interview because it's all about relationships and that's what life's all about, right? And I would tell the class, the minute you come out of the shoe, doctor slaps you on the butt, that's a relationship and says, welcome to the world. And every contact you have with people is a relationship. It may be short-lived. Maybe long term, but nonetheless, it's a relationship. If you walk into a Walmart and make a purchase, and the clerk you're dealing with is not having a good day, and you walk away from that, and it comes across, you walk away from that relationship, that little three or four minutes, and you don't feel too good about what just happened over there. You got what you wanted, but you're taking away something that you didn't want. You go to that same Walmart, and you get to go to a clerk that is. Love and life has a great day. It reflects that in what they do and say in the workplace. And you walk away from that little three or four minute relationship feeling good about what just happened. So, and that's the way I approach everyone. And so how do you do that? How do you accomplish that? How do you get people to talk to you? And especially in that setting, in an interview room, talking to a suspect who's committed an act of violence, the ultimate act of violence taking another human life. How do you do that? Well, you go in there and you treat everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, orientation, doesn't matter what flavor they are, culture, religious background, doesn't make any difference. You treat everybody with dignity and respect. And how do you do that? You remember the three things we all have in common. Everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, orientation, flavor, Wherever you live in the world, we all have three things in common. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. And we all want to take care of those who love and respect us. We just make different choices about how we accomplish those three things. And I know that it works because it, it, it gives me the ability to walk into a room under the most extreme circumstances of who I'm going to be interviewing. And, and the most extreme interview that I've had was a 29-year-old uh, Iranian Muslim female who had buried her two-month-old baby alive. She spoke Farsi was her first language, but she understood English quite well. She claimed that this baby had been kidnapped. And... In the middle of the day, while she was out with her with her baby boy in a stroller. Now, I told you what she was. She had a heat job on. I mean, you couldn't have had more two different people sitting in that room. I mean, look, I'm an old Southern Baptist boy from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. Now we had great resources at HPD. I brought in another officer who was Iranian Muslim practiced Islam, and spoke Farsi. So we were able to communicate in a great way, and it was awesome. But I treated her the way I treated her like I would anybody. Dignity and respect, remembering those, three, remembering those three things. Eventually, she agreed to take me, because she was denying that. She agreed to take me to where the baby was, and that was huge. Then when I said we were going to go do this, she put her hand on my knee and said, turned away from her countrymen and says, I want to go with you. Now, that is huge. If she had done that in 
Tehran that have taken her head off. So it, it, it is amazing how reflecting the love of Christ for her got us to the truth about what she had done. And it didn't make any difference what those incredible differences were between us from every aspect of our character and our being. So I, I tell that little, that's kind of a long story, but I, I tell that because it is, it's, it, it is, it's the truth. And uh, it's the truth with a capital T. Detective, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being a lighthouse in your, your job. And, um, to hear such an unparalleled perspective into just one of the hundreds of thousands of murders that occur, that in and of itself is really important and valuable. And to hear your approach to eliciting these confessions and connecting with those that as society we condemn so quickly um, is all the more compelling. And I'm so grateful to you and impressed by you and grateful for your serving as a lighthouse for good and a lighthouse for Christ. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And thank you for all of your service. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate it. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.